Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 53, Act 2, Margie Johnson-Reese, Passing the Baton, recorded February 18th, 2022. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now, it up now. Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingirishry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merchandise, and more. I know that we all knew it was coming, but I don't know about you, but when I saw that notification that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe v. Wade, revoking a constitutional right that has been in place for nearly 50 years, Oh boy, was that a punch in the gut. Uh, this is a decision that revokes federal protections um, and reverts the laws for um, abortion rights to the individual states to either expand protections for abortion and women's reproductive rights or ban slash restrict those rights within a state. And this very much impacts, this pretty much impacts everyone, but very acutely black and um, BIPOC trans people, as well as BIPOC women, other dis- uh, intersectionalities of women with disabilities, low-income women, and all of the people in their lives. I happen to live in a state that will protect these rights, but at least half half of the states in this country will have laws that will ban or greatly restrict abortion and other um, reproductive rights um, and just controlling bodies. It, it doesn't make any, I don't get how you think you can control a woman's body <laughs> or anyone's body, frankly. Um, yeah. This insidious decision made by a conservative stacked 
Supreme Court is egregious. And I, I, you know, there's always been a fight and I want to thank people for continuing to be in that fight. And then very specifically, you saw the protests and people fighting for women's reproductive rights this weekend. And we will keep fighting and we will need to keep fighting. I mean, thinking on, on a sort of more hyper, hyper micro level, um, zooming in on our public education system, this is a, this is a workforce that I, I believe it's 76% of the workforce is women. And um, I was reading an article this morning in Education Weekly. Um, and according to this article, quote, leaders of the National Teachers Unions, which represents the nation's majority female education workforce, said that this, the decision was part of a troubling pattern. The order is, quote, another example of how over the past few years, we have seen the same factions of politicians working overtime to reverse decades of progress on racial justice, on women's rights, on workers' rights, on LGBTQ plus rights, on voting rights, on our right to privacy, and on students' freedom to learn in our public schools. And that was from, that quote was from um, National Education Association President Becky Pringle. She goes on to say, these attacks on our freedom are designed to do one thing, consolidate unfettered power into the hands of a few. We must stand up for all of our rights. And when we're talking about being in solidarity, this is what we're talking about, y'all. This is what we're talking about. Okay. In, our, uh, in the final section of our interview with Margie Johnson-Reese, Margie shares projects in her career that she's most proud of and about how she sees her life's work and that one component of that is opening the door for other Black women and other people of color to work in this field. Um, Margie is just such a remarkable human and I want to thank her so much for taking the time to share her story with me. I know that wasn't easy, but I don't know. I'm just, uh, she made me cry multiple times in this part of the <laughs> interview and then re-listening to it, I like bawled. So again, sit back and enjoy. Here is episode 53, act two, Margie Johnson-Reese, Passing the Baton this is your life's work. So I want to know what, uh, what are some, you know, projects or, um, work that you've done over the decades that you are the most proud of? I am uh, proud of a lot of things. Um, one in particular is standing my ground for the selection of, of, an architect to design the Dallas Latino Cultural Center. That was only a work on paper when I started my job as director of that office. Uh, the city has a policy in its cultural policy that the city will contribute X amount, X percentage of money to build a new cultural center. And the public 
the community would raise the other amount. And we were in the process of getting that goal, that city goal organized and, and engaging the community in conversations about building a designated cultural center to celebrate. This is Dallas, Texas. And we didn't have a space for the distinct you know, designation of celebrating Latino culture and heritage, and but it was on the books. So we were working toward that. And the city also has a process for selecting architects. And so we had gone through a year or so of community conversation with heartfelt conversation from a community that had been largely ignored. We had the African-American Museum by this time, we've got you know, other iconic African-American spaces and the city process for selecting the architect yielded a good old boy, white architectural firm. And I just thought this is not going to happen on my watch. What a slap in the face when, there, when there's so much brilliant talent all over the world. And I've studied, right? So I, I knew that I needed to know the, the great architects. And at the time, Ricardo Legoretta, Legoretta um, was an architect that was building fabulous structures all around the world from Mexico City and had designed spaces in Los Angeles and San Antonio and just outside of Dallas. And I'd taken my staff to see them. And I said, this is worthy of our community. Our community is worthy of this level. And so I um, sent their firm, a, 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 I called them, I guess, and inquired and got the, the architect on the phone. He's now deceased. And he said, well, maybe we can, we'll, we'll respond to the bid or to the call. I convinced him to do it. I went went to Mexico City on my own dime. What? And appealed to him and his son, who is who is now in charge of the firm, um, spoke beautiful, beautifully, beautifully of this whole idea of his father and, and the way his father uses color and you know, just talked about his father. And I thought, oh my gosh. So I go back, he does respond. And, and ultimately he is the designer of a center is built and standing beautifully. But along the way, I was tortured by my by city leadership um, because I had stood for this community and for what I knew was the right thing to do. And I had a leader in, in, in the city management say to me, you don't represent those people. You can't represent those people. It was like taking a dagger. I'm the director of the Office of Cultural Affairs, all cultures. And we, we need to think about who we represent. We, we represent, as I say, often, when you work for city government, you don't have to serve anybody. You have to serve everybody. And so I knew that that was the right thing to do. That decision, which was the right one and was highly controversial, caused me to have the city auditors auditing my department's work. And um, sent, I had people come to my house to try to find out that I had stolen a computer that my daughter had, which had been given to her by the college that she was going to at the time. And I had insiders in my office just trying to find something negative about me. 
And it did hurt, but at the same time, I knew that it was right. And I knew that I could not show how, I could not show the pain that was causing me because I had to represent. And it worked. I'm so proud of that building to this day. My name is nowhere around it or on it because when I got through that process, I, I left the city. I said, I, I don't need to be in this space anymore. I've done everything that I can do here and was recruited immediately. Actually, the recruitment was happening while this was going on to run the Office of Cultural Affairs in Los Angeles. And so the, 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 the look, when I went back three years later when the building was up to, to the opening, and I looked at the faces of the artists and the people in the community that we had worked so hard for, and they, they got what they deserved, which was the best of the best. And as a creative person, that's what you want. But as an administrator, that's what you want. But as a person whose life's work is to make sure that there's participation for those who choose to participate, that was, a, that was my check mark to myself. I don't talk about that a lot, but that's one of my proudest moments was being able to say, I've done it. I can move on and, and leave the door open for all of the young Latino artists, um, Latinx artists to come in and take the space and make it be, be their own. It's a beautiful thing. That's a legacy moment. I, I should write that down at some point. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have it you know, and posterity. Really, really, really proud to see that purple tower that the city leaders said, we can't have a purple tower in downtown Dallas. And the architect said, well, then I'll take my stuff and I'll go back to Mexico City, but you're not gonna, you're not gonna tamper with my design. And, you know, you needed that strength. Um, I'm proud of Big Thought. I'm proud that when I left it, it was uh, an idea um, that was designed to, to make sure that children across the city in public schools had access to arts and creativity. And the, the structuring of that was not, you know, it was, it was my intent that we needed to do it as part of my life's work, but it wasn't my work alone. My job was to create the infrastructure to get the school district and the city, the two giant bureaucracies to play ball together. I did that. And brilliantly, Gigi and Tony took it from there and turned it into this massive system for delivering high quality arts learning for kids across the city. That was, that was a partnership that only comes once in a lifetime. And to look back at it, to look at it now, it's a different organization and it should be. It has a different focus now and it should have. It's a 30, 35 year old organization, but it was created because when I ran the Office of Cultural Affairs, a council member challenged me in a council meeting one day and he said, why should we keep giving money to these large white institutions and the children in my neighborhood aren't benefiting from them. And I thought that is a very good question. 
and let's let me figure it out. And so just just the behind the scenes, talking to elected officials, talking to our mayor and our city manager and the superintendent of schools and all the team of artists that we were able to, to have do some groundwork for us. And then to convince the arts organizations in town, that this is a civic moment. We can redistribute these resources to kids all over the city, not just the wealthy kids. Building the infrastructure so that a creative person like Gigi could take it is a proud moment for me. I have, I have the highest regard for that woman, um, but I also have a great deal of, of hope that that institution will stay and keep changing and keep growing to meet the needs of young people in our community. And so when I left Dallas uh, from the job after the cultural center uh, episode, I left it with Gigi. And when I came back years later after having been in LA and working abroad, it, it had become this big thought thing. And coming back to it is when I met you. Yeah. I had come back from, you know, being retired from two other jobs or something. But I'm very proud of that. And um, I think finally I will say the thing uh, from my work in, in West Africa, which we'll talk more about, is having called attention to the fact that West African artists uh, were geniuses and that West African art still existed in West Africa, that it was not all lost or stolen or decayed. And with the resources that were available from the Ford Foundation that I was working for, we were able to dig a little bit deeper in the area of preservation and conservation, a world that I had no knowledge of as a theater person until I saw my face in wood carvings that were hundreds, you know, that happened hundreds of years before my, my birth. But I could see my spirit, I could see myself in that work. I understood that I had to represent that, that work and those artists in a way that would get global attention again as, as, as it deserved and not let anybody know, including the, the leadership at the British Museum that I was clueless about what conservation meant, you know, really from a technical perspective, but I knew that it needed to happen. And I'm really proud of the friends I made in West Africa and the work that I was able to convince people to do. Um, I mean, there are some things along the way that I am happy about, you know, riding a bull in West Texas and what? <laughs> wearing a cowboy hat and learning about, you know, that part of our country's history. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud that I was able to work in Los Angeles in a city that is diverse. It doesn't do diversity, it just is. And, and holds, you know, hold court there and support, you know, local artists. I'm proud, of, I'm proud of myself for a lot of things, but those three things that I'm describing to you are probably my legacy projects that I 
I celebrate to myself. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing. I, I want to, I want to just, yeah, just uplift all these beautiful projects that you, um, you just uplifted. And I also, I don't think you want to hear this, but I'm going to say I'm, I'm, uh, I felt like saying, you know, I'm like, I really am sorry that that happened to you, that you were pushed out and you were, you were sounded like terrorized because you, you stood your ground on something and intimidation is real. And, um, yeah. And I, I can only imagine that you always held yourself and, and were able to go through that with dignity. Um, but I, I want to just acknowledge that cause that's not okay. Tell us more. Cause you, you said, Oh, we're going to talk more about um, your work with uh, the West African art and conservation. What, what, Oh wait, before I ask that question, wait, I just want to make sure I understood something. Just a point of clarification with big thought. Did you start big thought? Did I miss that? You started the big, th- big thought. What? Because, you know, that that was like a remarkable thing that we were like, can we try and replicate something like that in New York City? And it was it still is a terribly hard thing to try and figure out. <laughs> um, that's that's amazing. I knew you were a part of it, but I didn't understand because, like you said, I when by the time I met you, it was after you had come returned and you were working on this. Like, you, I think you, at that point you were working as a consultant and you were working on this very this specific project. Um with the teaching artist that I described earlier. So I, I didn't get that until you just said it before. I was like, wait, of course, <laughs> of course. That was. that was a seed bearer for it. Bearer, yes. I was the, the person, I was the director of the city's office of cultural affairs, right? And I, and I was faced with this challenge. I'm advocating for more money for the arts. And yet it's c- clear that the same children are going to the same symphony every year and the same children are not. And so um, I did what I think I do best, which is bring people together and say, here's a problem. We need to solve it. I went to, and I, and, and, and Gigi ran one of three or four youth service organizations, young audiences at the time. And there were a couple of children, children theater or children's theater organizations and uh, social service agencies. So I brought those folks together and said, here's a problem, let's talk about it. And then I went to the school board, the school district, and they said, you know, the arts is not our problem, let's go talk to the mayor. And so I went to talk to the mayor and I said to the mayor, you know, the superintendent said, if you'll get involved, he'll get involved. And then the mayor said, well, it's superintendent. So, you know, I was telling everybody (laughs) and, we started working on it and did some research and I, and I have to give it to her. Gigi took this ball and ran with it along with several other leaders of the cultural community at that time. And we needed, uh, we needed an entity, non-city, that would collect and, and convene and young audiences agreed to do that. And when I left Dallas, the project was under uh, the young audiences auspices. And by the time I got back, the need had been identified, funding you know, had grown for it. And we started it with $50,000 from the city that I managed to 
carve out to match a $50,000 from the school district and then 50,000 from the private sector that the mayor helped us get. And that's what started this little, this little engine that is now, I don't know how many millions of dollars uh, and what their reach is, but, but um, yeah. I just feel like incredibly proud of you. I'm incredibly proud of the fact that I know you <laughs> or know somebody like you. I feel like I'm one of those people that you open the door for. Yeah. And you're taking your space. You're taking, you're making it your own. And, and you will do that and have done it for other people. And that's how we stay strong. And that's how we change. Everyone has a different strategy or a different tactic, certainly different personalities, but this is mine. Um, I, I figured out that I wasn't gonna be a ballerina, but I figured out that I could help somebody else be one. And that would make me proud and, and happy and say, you know, you know, sort of, there you go. I showed you guys. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think we all do that, really. We, we all have a commitment to staying in this field because we've been in it. We have a commitment to asking hard questions and to asking the, you know, the five whys, you know, asking why, 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 until we get down to the root of the problem. And then once you get down to the root of it, you can unravel it and you know what's causing it. You can unravel it. And, and I think that's a challenge. I, I love, you know, the challenge. I have two beautiful adult children. Neither of them are artists, but they've dabbled around in it. But they're both arts patrons. And they will, and arts patrons will protect all of us, you know, what we're doing and the way we express ourselves and, and invite other people in. But I still have a, I still know that there is a great deal to celebrate. When we lost Sidney Poitier a month or so ago, yes, we lost an icon. And we should all read and listen and, and think about his journey. But I should also read and listen to yours and to the young director that I just met last week. And, you know, because, because all of our work is pushing forward uh, in the field of the arts, um, respect for cultural difference and acknowledgement that we're the only ones that can be in control of our stories again, because we've lost control and we have to stay in the game to right the ship. I think. And sometimes it it sounds like I'm, you know, preaching this flowery, you know, we're gonna make the world a greater place and all that. This hard work that we're doing. But we do it because we we listened to that song in our ears that said, I think. I'm just going to run on and see what the end's going to be. 
I think I'm just going to stay in it and see how far we get. I'm not going to give up. And I'm not going to let you change language to feel better. You know, do the right thing is still do the right thing. You can call it diversity and inclusion and metrics and equity. You could call it whatever you want to call it, but do the right thing and still do the right thing. And this is still America and we're still not doing the right thing. And it's, it's not sad or it's not shocking, but the arts in America is, I said it an hour ago, it's a construct. It's a system that wasn't built for us. But if we can see that it was designed to exclude us, we have a responsibility to redesign it, not to change it. And people say, what do you, what, let's reimagine. Well, I don't want to reimagine something that's broken. I want to imagine something new and different. And I want to stand for that. And I guess that's where I should leave it because then I'll start, you know, lecturing on, you know, integrity is king. Your word is king. And if you believe it enough, you will stand, you know, stand by it and you will stand up to your word. You won't make promises that you can't keep. Do you still practice art? I practice the arts of bureaucracy. Ooh. No, I don't. And I am not proud of that. But I go to the theater and to the museums and to galleries and to openings as much as I can so that I can see who, who was missing and who else I can help uplift, you know, their own work. But I, I, I wasn't, I, I, I think the last thing I directed, I directed is Joe Turner's Come and Gone um, in the eighties. And maybe that was the last show I directed. And it was beautiful and I totally loved it. Um, but um, I, I practice the art of supporting you. So, you know, mm-hmm. so you can keep doing what you're doing. An art unto itself without a doubt. Um, so let's go back to, to the, to the conservation. Cause I, you said that you will talk about that later, but I, what are we talking about? Tell us how did, so you, so you went to, to West, Western Africa, what countries? So after I'd been in LA running that office for about five or six years, I was going to retire. So wait, I just want to make sure this is before you and I met. We met in, I think in 2012. I left Dallas in 2000, went to LA in 2000, left there in 2006 to work for the Ford Foundation in West Africa, in their West Africa office. Oh, okay. They were recruiting a a program officer to work in Nairobi, actually. But by the time we got through the process, there had been a terrible bombing at the the embassy in Kenya. And they said, well, we're gonna hold on that. We do need somebody in Lagos, Nigeria. And I thought, well, it's not me. Uh, But I went to New York and I, met with them and met the wonderful um, woman that ran the portfolio at the time. And I went to Nigeria to visit because that was part of the process. And 
I had been to West Africa before with my kids, you know, but I had not been to Nigeria. I'd been to Ghana. Girl, I get to Lagos, Nigeria, and I thought, oh, my God. Ooh, all my cousins are here. There were so many people. I, 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 but they were, they were busy. Everybody had someplace to go and something to do. And so I was toured around and I stayed three or four days. It was a lovely hotel. Everything was nice, but I thought it's hot here. And, and it, and it is, it's rains in the evenings and it's sticky and all the things that were superficial that would make me say no as a spoiled American, I say. Um, and I met some of the grantees and, you know, the leaders in the cultural sector. But I just, I just didn't have a connection. I just, I thought, I don't know what I would do here. I mean, the Ford Foundation is nothing to sneeze at, but I just didn't know what I would do. So I came back, went back to LA and said, I'm retiring, but no thank you, Ford. And a, so a month passed and they said, well, will you go back again and look at it one more time? So I did. But this time I was able to go to the museums. They, they arranged for me to have some free time. And I went to the museums and on my last day, I went to the, the National Museum in Lagos. And I saw, I saw our heritage. I saw works of, of the creative spirit that weren't art. They were ceremonial pieces of work and I, and they were, they had been protected and they were locked up and they let me go into the store, the store called the storage, the stores. They let me go and see, I mean, thousands of pieces of wood carvings that were decaying, but they had to lock them up to keep them safe. Safe from people who were stealing them that didn't look like us. And some people did look like us maybe, but in the process, the environment had, you know, the heat, the, um, you know, little bugs that grow in wood, and, you know, and, but, but I felt like there was this, this earnestness about keeping it safe. And the museum itself, which was built by the British when the British colonized um, Nigeria. And so the museum had not been updated, but it was clean and it was taken care of to the degree that it could be given the financials, you know, um, uh, environment. And from the museum, I went back to my hotel to pack my bag to go to the airport. And I thought there is something there that I can do. So I go back to New York, we work it out. I agree. I go back to LA. They moved me. My daughter, who is finishing her master's in teaching, said, I'll go with you if you're going to go. So she and I take our little happy selves to Nigeria. And I thank God for that experience because of all the things that I had been through, learning about politics and dealing with politicians, understanding the rules of the game, being emotion free, but crying inside, representing, uh, speaking for those who, whose voice has not been heard, um, and speaking up, and the first grant that I made 
was to the British Museum. This was strategy number one, because it was the British that said, we have stolen work from Nigeria and other West African countries in our possession, but we're not giving it back because if we return it to the West African countries, Nigeria specifically, they don't have the system, the equipment, the expertise to take care of it. So we're just gonna keep it for them. Okay. <laughs> and I said, okay. The only thing that I have that you people love is money. So let's talk about, since you think we don't have the environment and the training and the expertise, why don't you bring your folks to Nigeria and why don't you teach us what we need to know? And they were right. New practices and ways of conservation and preserving things had occurred over those 55 years since the British left. But the, it wasn't without lack of ability to learn it. It was lack of access to the material. So we funded a three-year, five-year process for the experts from the British Museum to come and be in residence in Nigeria. Major shift. Tell us how to do it right then. And at the end of it, do you agree then to start returning objects if that has started to happen? In exchange for that, the Nigerian curators will be in residence at the British Museum and straighten you out about how to exhibit these pieces that you have in your possession. Correcting some of the text language that you have that's incorrect. Calling this art as opposed to a ceremonial vessel. And you will learn too at the same time. And if I tell you that if nobody else appreciated what I did but me, I appreciated it. Because we had the head of the British Museum come to New York and meet with, the, with, with Ford pre-Darren Walker. Um, and we took um, artifacts from Timbuktu to New York and allowed them to be in residence at the Met for a day because the um, leadership in that, in that village didn't trust their, you know, their heritage to just, you know, anybody. Anyway, it was one of those, let's show the world that everything that you think about West African art and that, and, and, and the written language of African uh, people that you've dismissed as, you know, not existing is, is there. And so from that point on, I spent most of my time literally rolling up my sleeves, working in the museums across the 14 West African countries that were in our portfolio, from Nigeria to Benin to Mali and, um, you know, just across. I learned, I learned more than I left. I learned, I took away more than I left. Um, but when I did leave, this is a proud moment story, I was given the name of the mother of the Nigerian museum. Oh my goodness. 
I could not have been more proud of the women in the museum world uh, in West Africa, the women who were caretakers of, their, of our culture, who had been to school and had learned, but they didn't have access to materials and supplies and a simple thing like the, the museum could only be open for a certain number of hours because there wasn't enough money to buy gas to run the power to turn the lights on. I mean, simple things. But when we were able to open that place up consistently and the school children were coming back again, it was energy like you had, you could just see it. And the pride um, of the men and women that were caretakers, our caretakers uh, of our history and our heritage. And so I did my three years, a little bit more than three years there um, and came back and, you know, you have the opportunity to work in the New York office after you've done your time abroad. But, you know, I just, I was ready to go home. And so I went back to Texas and that's when I met you. Oh, wow. And I'm 71 years young. Yes, you are. What a remarkable story. What a remarkable thing. Like, it happened. It's not a story. Wow. You know, and the Ford Foundation wanted, they hire so many brilliant people, but that's not why they hired me. They, they wanted someone who could handle the politics of underdeveloped, under-resourced countries and leaders. They wanted someone who could be self, uh, what's the word, self-confident, uh, um, could be confident in themselves, who would be accountable, but who could also be nurturing and, and respectful. And so just learning, I had, well, I had learned in Los Angeles protocol as a byproduct of my work with the international cities, sister cities to Los Angeles and traveling to Berlin, et cetera. And so that was, so all the stuff that you learn along the way is just, it's just building up to you living out in doing your life's work. And so I learned how to be respectful. I'd learned not just a protocol of the African heritage, but of respecting people in their, in their land. Um, and, and so the times when I would be in the smaller villages where the, the king and the chiefs were really the rulers, I knew that it wasn't my Americanism that I needed to show off. I needed to show off my humility. And I, I do recall the day that one of the chiefs that we went to visit about uh, doing a, 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 a theater documentation project. I remember walking with him and sharing a meal and of who knows what I ate that day. Um, and then finally getting down to the moment where I was asking him permission to uh, document this, this cultural, um, uh, theater. And he looked at me, Courtney, and he said, well, you are after all African. 
I thought, damn, I sure as hell am. Yeah, with my fuzzy little hair that I had at the time. And, you know, this person that I am is more close. I have a kinship with this man that he has recognized. And what an honor uh, to be recognized by someone who we have essentially no real knowledge of. Um, but that was a centering moment for me and, and a reminder that I was also representing him. It's been a, a terrific journey. And along the way, I got involved in coming back to Big Thought in helping to rethink the adults that work with children. And, and that's how I got into the teaching artist lane. Um, I'd gone to enough conferences with Big Thought to see that there weren't enough artists of color being paid well enough to build a career as a teaching artist. And that, that was an area of our work in the field that needed some attention. And so we created this fellowship program that you um, saw us starting to develop. And ironically enough, um, I think there were a dozen in the program. Um, I am still in, in contact with most of them. And, and they have taken what they've learned and dispersed to other places, which is what you want to see happen. But I just think, uh, artists that have the energy and the commitment to guide young people through sharing and identifying with their own creativity are just the most important people in the world. Yeah. They really are, because that that's a that's a that's a, a service. I don't particularly care for the term servant leader. Yeah. Uh, but that's definitely a service that creative people bring to a community when they understand the importance of being a prepared, being prepared to share and guide young people. I think that's that's a service. It should be it should be high on the list of um, how artists are paid, you know, to do you know, to do their work. What you have shown in your stories, in, in your sharing today is, you know, the audience knows this question that I ask about, you know, what do we think a, a liberated and racially just world looks like? But I think from the stories that you shared, you have, you have found um, ways to carve out what liberation can look like in different ways. Um, so I don't think that that necessarily needs to be our conversation towards the end here, but um I'm I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious if you want to know anything about me because you did share quite a bit about yourself. Yeah, I I want to know how you see yourself in in this in this bubble that I keep talking about representing representing because. You're a leader in the field. You're, you're opening doors. You understand that you have that responsibility to do more of that 
and this platform is one of those ways that you do that, I think. But how do you see yourself in this, in that bubble of representing? I mean, is it important to you? Is it, does it feel burdensome to you sometimes to have to, you know, sort of adjust the way you would express a thing or enter a room? Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think talking about firsts, um, I'm the first uh, vice president of my institution that is, I, I think that's right, or at least currently, uh, uh, that is black. And, um, uh, and being in that room and influencing decision-making processes, uh, I have, I have found, you know, my, my want to sit back and understand the lay of the land before I sort of insert myself in it was sort of impossible because of when I, I was brought into that cabinet was during the pandemic. And it was just like, go, <laughs> go and be. Um, and so I'm, I'm thoroughly asking myself my, my own questions about what kind of leader do I want to be? What kind of leader have I been? What kind of leader do I want to be? And the opening doors that has definitely never felt um, burdensome in any way it was it was natural to me as well but I I will say that uh, you know I have a particular style and I have a particular um, standard of of what I think quality and work looks like and that may not be what everybody <laughs> sees or, or thinks and so that that can potentially skew somebody's um, vision of how I've been opening the doors potentially but how I see myself I want to be an advancer. I want to make sure that I'm always advocating, um, especially for teaching artists. That is definitely like at the core of what I, I, I feel like I do, but the kids, um, uh, you know, this week was the first week that we did, we had education performer school based, uh, school groups in our theater since almost, almost two years ago. Um, and, that is, I mean, that's the basis of what we do and the fact that we haven't been able to do it in almost two years and figured out a way to do that where people could be safe and, you know, the schools who had to leap through already, you know, it, field trips are challenging under normal or better circumstances. And, um, you know, the fact that they were able to do that and had what felt like, you know, the best time that that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the other thing is making sure that, yeah, the, you know, kids kids of color especially get to see get to get to um you know experience what it's like to be an audience member what it's like to feel welcomed into a theater get to experience just like enjoying themselves and playing and laughing and giggling without being told to shush um that is very important to me and that and and being able to help the other adults in the space understand that that's how young people can engage in theater and performing arts. So, uh, that, I think that idea is, you know, the idea of opening doors is not just about the leadership or opportunities for more, um, administrators of color and other, uh, other, um, people with other kinds of of identities having, um, you know, real voices in the work that we do and, and abilities to contribute to what we do, but also, challenging what the the you know the conventions of theater going 
have been and what they can be and how this can be a communal collective space where we are responding and giving energy back to the, the artists as they are giving to us and that that's reciprocal. Um, that, that's, that's what I see as a, as a, a part of my job, uh, of my life's work. Absolutely. Because that's how I feel like I had parents who were very, um, you know, were, were huge, you know, in terms of, uh, arts engagement and had taken me and my sister to see many, many shows, whether it was at my father's high school or off Broadway or Broadway or, um, going to museums and just cultural events. That was a big part of my life growing up. And to be able to create opportunities for students to do that is in and and for it to look different in different ways um is is incredibly important to me and i want to work with people who also feel passionate about that um so that's that's how i see myself and then in terms of yeah in terms of continuing to open no doors i started this podcast because i wanted i wanted more people to understand what it is that the people that i get to work with do because i think they are amazing and more people should understand how amazing they are. So I want to, I, you know, this is all about celebrating different individuals, but celebrating our community and celebrating the work that we do. Um, and I, I get to be in learning space, right? I get to learn and grow along the way because of the conversations that I'm having in this space that absolutely have influence over what is happening in uh, my other parts of my, my work life, life, et cetera, and vice versa, you know, big questions that I'm asking in those other spaces, I'm able to ask in a more candid way that it's like, I'm processing, I'm trying. And, and so I don't have to feel, um, like I know everything in a given space because this is a, this is a, my, this is my space, even though it's, you know, technically public, it, this is my space for me to work through some of that stuff that maybe you would do behind closed doors. Um, so that other part of this is that I want others to feel like it's okay to process like this and to also be on a journey with me and with the guests um, as we are shaping and growing and stretching the field as it, as it has been and where it could go. And, and we need to stop and take that time and listen and learn. And I learned from, from you and, and the younger leaders that I mentor and see and am and, and watching do things in, in a different way than I did. But it doesn't mean that, it just means that it's different. It doesn't mean that it's wrong or not going to work. It just means it's different and you have to keep changing. Yeah. And leadership has to keep changing. Mm -hmm. And so my final thought and word would be that when people say arts administration or any other hard task is not a sprint, you know, it's a marathon. You have to, it's a long haul. I say it's neither. And I'm in that phase of believing that this work is a relay. And I have run my strongest leg and I'm handing the baton to you. That's it. That's all I have to say. And, and when it's your turn to hand it off to the next person, you should, have be, you should be able to say, I've run the strongest leg I can run. And I'm not giving up and I'm not quitting, but I know we need fresh legs. Mm. And so I prepared that path 
I'm taking my shoes off, uh, but I'm handing the baton to you. And I, I want you to be on my team and I want you to be successful. I'm tearing up. <laughs> oh, golly. I just love you, Margie, so much. Thank you for this time and for this honor. I'm honored to talk to you and to share and to see you grow and to see you hold the position that you hold. I think it's, that's what we do. This is your life's work. It's, it's, it's one leg, you know, it's one part of it because you're not done by a long shot. And man, I know, <laughs> I know you're not. I thank you. Thank you. All right, let's talk again. Thank you for listening to episode 53, Act 2 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Margie Johnson-Reese, Passing the Baton. Join us next time for a conversation with Melissa Park. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB, and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.